Hello everybody, welcome to Wombat Radio. Today we're speaking... I'll let you introduce yourself. <laughs> hi, I'm... Okay, hi, I'm uh, Laura Young, and um, a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> In my Airbnb living room. Overlooking the, the oh, shopping centre. Overlooking the, the, the back beach. of the bottle <laughs> And beach, yeah. Uh, at... Where are we? We're Burley. We're Burley Heads um, on the Gold Coast. So nice. It's pretty nice. It's pretty sunny. So instead of being out in the sun, we're going to talk about what you've been thinking about. Okay. Or how you're working on those things that you've been thinking about. Do you want to pick something? <laughs> <laughs> out of all the things. Out of all the things. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, like we were talking earlier, I feel like I'm at a real <clears throat> interesting point in my life. Career sounds crisis. too... No, not at all a crisis, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been working in dance and dance making for, for a while now. And um, some significant shifts has been that in the last two years, I received a... a lovely opportunity to work as a fellow with the Volkswagen Institute, which is a German private foundation which um, offers money for research. Mm-hmm. You applied to that. And I applied to this open call, which was asking for artists and scientists um, to work together, to create new projects, to create new research projects together. And so for the past two years, I've been busy with this kind of thinking. So I have three projects within, within this um, organization. And one of them is um, called How to Not Be a Stuffed Animal. And that's working with um, anthropologists, lovely, amazing woman, Susanna Schmidt from Munich. Mm-hmm. So I live in Berlin normally, and she lives in Munich. You applied as a... Berlin artist? It was open to... uh, You can apply. It was international call. Yeah. So everything's actually done in English. There's an international call. Although most of the recipients are German-based. Yeah. So Susanna and I, she's an anthropologist and sensory ethnographer. And we've been working um, using the the taxidermy. Taxidermy or so, as people know them, stuffed animals in museums um, as cultural objects. Mm-hmm. And looking at them um, in the muse- in the museum setting, and what kind of stories and livelihoods they can speak to, which means that I've been working in a very different way than I have been in the past. Um, I'm working very transdisciplinary, working a lot with uh, Susanna um, by reading texts and a lot of co-writing. And this is all quite new practices for me. Um, so I've, I've been spending, in some ways, a lot less time in the studio dancing and a lot more time writing and reading. So that's something that's been really exciting. Um, working in museum settings, thinking about how museums move us, what information they want us to receive, and how we can, by changing our... Our, literally our body positions and the way that we use rhythm and walk and um, body positionings, how we can shift our horizons of the museum and how that can offer us different ways of, of being in these spaces. 
have you come across museums that still have uh, people artifacts in them? Because <laughs> where has it happened? In Australia and in... It's a very common, very, very, very unfortunate, traumatic um, history that is ongoing. And of course, this is something that's a current, has become a current issue uh, about the repatriation of human remains. Yeah, from like Egyptian mummies all the way through to idols yes. 50 years ago. Yes, yeah. and yeah, and this is something that requires a lot of research and a lot of sensitivity and something that we acknowledge but are not necessarily specialized in. So we work... Um, we work closely with the taxidermists okay. in in the museums, and we work with archives. Oh, there's like usually a, a resident taxidermist. There can be, yep. Wow, yep. that's cool. Yeah, so we did one at the um, Sydney Museum, mm-hmm. um, and there we, we met with a, the amazing, she's amazing taxidermist there, as well as a conservationist. But we also, so when we go into the space, we, we interview a range of people that can be the, you know, taxidermist but it can also mean the cleaning staff the, the citizen science volunteers um, front of house security sort of the whole ecology of the building is do you find a ethnic split across who's in what positions that is across different museums you've been to an ethnic split yeah like is there quite often um, first or second generation immigrants in the cleaning staff versus like long-time Australian residents or uh, expats because depending on your cash flow you're an immigrant or an expat that are like at the top that are in museum council positions if you haven't found it it doesn't matter no I think I um because I imagine someone vacuuming around that stuffed fox has a very different relationship with it than someone who's writing the check to have it re-taxed it yes I think yes yes I mean I think there's also a certain um post-secondary school education that might be very costly that is perhaps that there's a divider that could be a divider definitely in terms of education and privilege for sure and so when I came to the Sydney one what I experienced was a, I'm a people and I'm gonna these are animals the, the split actually between my experience was that I'm gonna go in and experience animals but I'm a person and I'm separate from those animals but there are opportunities to mimic or inhabit how they would be if they were alive and they were in the space that I am in um, is that something that is that comes from choreographic interest of inhabiting concepts and ideas physically or is that just is choreography got nothing to do with this Chore- I think choreography has a lot to do with the entire experience if we also take choreography perhaps away from dance and we think and if I think of choreography about you know designing movement in space and designing relations through bo- body and movement cool. Um, Even bodies that now are and, dead. And dead bodies, dead. absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, stuffed and dead bodies, absolutely. Um, it's all about those relations and how we 
we move ourselves in these spaces and in this, you know, very particular kind of architecture as well. Um, so choreography definitely has a, a major component. It's it's embedded in the entire experience. What I hope, mm-hmm. yeah. But I wouldn't necessarily call it dancing per no, se. Okay. Yeah, but certainly um, being attuned. I, I think the reason that I wanted to have this experience in the museum is that I think, first of all, taxidermy objects are really amazing and disturbing and kind of fucked up. Um, at the same time, they're there. And how can we um, think about our relationship with them? Because the normal museum visitor, and I'm sure I would be the same, um, there's a, there can be a very consumerist way of being in the museum where you kind of walk by without really understanding necessarily what you're experiencing. So I, I feel like a lot of people have a very visceral visceral reaction to taxidermy, but don't necessarily know how to articulate that. Um, and so I'm hoping that these walks will um, tune into that. Um, also to consider that these are literally dead bodies that were around and not to take advantage of that, to really sit with it and and um, stay stay with that troubling fact. So something like multi-species uh, studies or multi-species ethnography where we take away, we try to take away the human ego in one sense and see ourselves amongst a multiplicity of species is something that Suzanne and I try to bring into these walks as well. It's like an extension of, um, I could be wrong about this, but this thing that I've been hearing about the second Copernicus revolution, which is first, the whole universe doesn't revolve around the Earth. That was the first one. We realized we're just another planet. And then second, humans are not the height of evolution, we're just another creature. Right. On the planet. Exactly. It doesn't start and end with humans, <laughs> basically. <laughs> That's the. Uh, that's the. I'm thankful for that. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, need it. We yeah. need that reminder. I remember feeling that most strongly towards the end with the Tasmanian tiger mm. and getting down and crawling. And I remember uh, seeing another person that had the headphones on not getting down and crawling. <laughs> and I wondered if. Because you wonder about people when you're doing, especially when you're doing something strange. Um, I wondered if she had zoned out and not heard it, or had heard it as a concept, mm. or um, was just of the age where her knees would mm. not thank her for doing that, or was above doing that, and then had to ask all those questions of myself as well. Mm. And why was I so ready to get down on my hands and knees? Because you're a dancer. <laughs> and a friend. <laughs> I guess both those things. Wow. Yeah, they're high on my list of things that I'd like to be in the world. <laughs> Check. Check on Check. both of those. Check. Yeah, no, there's a lot of parameters. I mean, you know, it's, it isn't, it's so... These walks come in the form of an audio track. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're also becoming a voice of authority. 
and we're, we, we bear that in mind very much when we're creating these scripts and it asks the listener to have a lot of trust in this person who's telling you what to do with your body you know like, it's your voice as well it's in this version it's my voice yeah. so I would speculate that you have experience directing people to do things with their body in a way that is an offer rather than in, in a way that is a stipulation just from working in studios and I've noticed this this difference in language from working in truck yards and working in a dance studio where actually the exact same thing is happening something is over there and it needs to move over there in a certain fashion but there there is a reinstatement of power and hierarchy based in some languages and in other languages like a reminder of possibilities absolutely at the same time it, I think it's also fair to say that hierarchies exist and it can exist in the studio as well absolutely yeah in both places yeah. and for also for a reason the if it if it gets reframed that everybody's appointed a job to move the group forward and your job is to direct us, then that helps the group move forward. Sure. And that's what I felt your job was to direct me through this experience mm. when I was the listener on the headphones. But I think the the Tasmanian Tiger one stuck with me because it's already in the national psyche in Australia. Mm. And I imagine that that would be different, say, in Canada, either with wolves or bears or something. That would be more of a... I don't know. I'm asking if there's an animal in the national psyche. Well, I think... Well, I think the Tasmanian tiger is also... Is, I mean, it is absolutely in, in the psyche here. And it's also... There's a hauntology that happens because it's an extinct... Hauntology. Yeah, it's, it's a haunted animal. It's, you know, it's... There are still sightings, you know, it's it's a very present... Actually, there was, I think, there's recent research where they 3D... Oh, man, I, I don't want to misquote. But it's it it's up. constantly in the news. Yeah. Um, and because it's an extinct animal. Mm. And so that's one specimen that I was really interested in because I knew that this Tasmanian tiger in this display case was only kind of being looked at for about 15 seconds huh. or 20, what 20 knows, or well, that's what there. I observed, yeah. you know, 15, it also wasn't signed very well. And just to understand that you're actually standing, you're alive, it's dead, it's an extinct animal. That fact alone is so strong for me. And I kind of just, I wanted to bring attention to that and, mm. and to consider the relevance of that moment. Um, so listening to a cool discussion about uh, consciousness and if we could generate consciousness once we get to the point of programming artificial intelligence. <clears throat> and the dude, I forget his name, but he came to the idea that we can't create it, but we could recreate it. If a consciousness, yours or mine, comes into being and then gets shaped by a bunch of experiences throughout life, then we might get to the point of being able to manipulate atoms that we could directly copy or recreate what has become, but to generate from scratch. 
and there's something that I think about taxidermy is like that last holding on to a physical uh, manifestation of a, an, an idea or a set of genetics or whatever mm. that we couldn't as like with all the powers that we have we couldn't have generated have imagined have created mm. that Tasmanian tiger but we can preserve and hold on to a, a, a reference of it or something that it becomes more I mean it's also wasn't there wasn't that during didn't it go extinct during a turning point where there were starting to be conservation efforts um, but plenty of things would have went extinct before anybody considered conservation sure Sure. I mean, I think also the Tasmanian tiger, with the the narrative that goes with it is that it was Tasmanian tiger was um, endangering livestock. That's the, that was the sort of justification of its yeah. Yeah. of killing it in the wild. Yeah, yeah. I, at this country wedding that I went to on the weekend, the MC was speaking about how good it is that the married couple were going to produce some more. Country kids, oh. um, because we need we need to increase that population. That's what the dude was talking about, and it wasn't actually like ethnic or racial. It was more about like the kind of lifestyle and the kind of relationship with land. Not everybody just living in apartments in the cities, I guess, um, but also primary producers oh. make actually growing food for people. To eat. Mm. Um, but then went off on a rant about all the things that we don't need. And listed a whole bunch of actually native fauna in Australia, emus and kangaroos, and all the things that wreck the fences and compete with their cattle for. Is this at the wedding? It was at the wedding, yeah, yeah. And this is his speech, like Part the groom's speech. speech? Well, yeah, oh, not the groom's speech. No, but. but MC I'm... was like, wow. It's real good that this couple's already producing country kids. We need to beef up that population. And not, not this problem problematic population with the emus and, the, and the shit like that. And you're like, okay, I get rabbits and I get foxes or something, but emus were here before us. Oh, wow. Kangaroos were here before us. There's a lot to be said about <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I have to completely appreciate that these people are part of a greater community that are the ones making the food so that I don't have to make it. So that I yeah, and, in city. and to be honest, for me, quite invisible because I live in the city. Like, actually, yeah, that I don't have, I don't have direct communication in relation to to the rural communities of mm. of Australia. We can I'll come go home. for a drive. So when's the next one? <laughs> <laughs> next wedding. There'll be plenty of weddings. It's the maybe, best thing. Maybe for the the kids' first birthday oh, or something. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what about then when you are in a a dance environment when you're using your choreographic superpowers, not for reconsidering museums and relationships to histories, but Ugh. to like Sounds make dance heavy dance. <laughs> what is dance? <laughs> what? I don't know. I thought you would know. I don't know. Well, what? Um, so, what? What's your question? <laughs> what do I, when you dance when I dance what happens alright that's a good question um I worked for a long time as a dancer mm. and as an interpreter who for, 
Huh? In Berlin? In Berlin, and you know, freelance world, you know. Okay. This thing that, like, is some people's lifelong dream and aspiration. People. You're like, oh, yeah, I just did it. Mm-mm. No, it's a super valuable experience, okay. but it's also not something that I do regularly anymore as a dancer. Because um, I started. Part. Like, do people stop? Do people, no, it's a legitimate um, thing. Like, there's a phenomenon where. Yes and no. Once choreographers become younger than a certain generation of dancers, they're yeah. intimidated to ask that generation of dancers that are older. Because than you can't kick your legs as high anymore. <laughs> no, it's like a self-imposed. I'm not a valuable enough choreographer to have that dancer who I look up to working for. Me. I don't think that's been a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Okay. That is not false modesty. I don't, no, um, you know, well, you know, they go. Ha- they, there is something that happens. Uh-huh. So first of all, um, as you start de- dedicating more time to your own work, and you know, you just have less time to do other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the moment, I'm working on a few different things. The, the one that I'm I'm currently thinking about a lot is this duet that I'm creating with a Canadian choreographer called Justine Chambers. And do we, you no longer call yourself Canadian? I call myself Canadian. Okay. But are you a Canadian choreographer? I'm a Canadian choreographer based in Berlin. Right. And sometimes in Australia. <laughs> sometimes. Because some people go, like, there's something born, but now, like, Canadian-born choreographer rather than Canadian choreographer. No, I think I would say it's still say Canadian. Okay. I certainly don't feel German. No. I live in Berlin, but I don't identify as being German. Although okay. my kid does. Yes. Well, it's about where you're born. Right? I guess, yeah. And then how, how much people around you agree with and uphold your self-identity. Mm, that whole mirror thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, but do you, does your German sound German, or do you have an accent? Um, I of course I have a small accent. I have an accent. I have, my German's okay, but you know it'll take about three sentences for someone to fig- two sentences okay. for someone to figure out that I'm not German. Yeah. It's hard to fi- it's hard to fake that one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've been working with Justine. She actually she she and I met in in a Canadian dance choreographers Canadian choreographers dance residency called Eight Days, which is quite yeah. an interesting. The website looks really good. Oh, you Look checked it, it out? Yeah, it's like this flyover of this beautiful countryside. Oh, there, yeah, I'll have to check it. I haven't seen it lately, but um, it has had five different iterations. So it started off with six Canadian choreographers, sort of self-funded, to basically understand, um, get to know each other's practices without necessarily looking at aesthetics, but just having the opportunity to speak to each other, ask questions. What are your concerns? What are the things that make you happy? What you know, just spending time together because, like. Australia, Canada is geographically huge, and um, and there aren't very many opportunities where Canadian choreographers can get together and talk and sort of be with each other without a feeling of competition. That can happen. Um, so this Canadian residency 
grew from six people to 12 people to sort of exponentially increased every, every year to six more people. And it's a wonderful... This is where I met Justine. Six more people every year. Six more people every year. I think that's logarithmic rather than exponential. Sorry, true. It feels like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was like. Holy shit. Yeah, I think we're up to like 30-something. There must be people you don't meet. Yes, and I don't go... And I don't attend every year as well. But um, it was kind of a really... You know, I also am in the, in the position where I, I don't live in Canada, so some of the. Are you t- happy about that? That's a complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it was an opportunity to, in a way, be engaged with these conversations, but also be a fly on the wall because a lot of the I was really new to some of the conversations mm. taking place. But it what it was speaking to. Sometimes this lack of discourse that can happen, perhaps, within uh, the contemporary dance community. Um, that there's no discourse that at all, that, that it's there, that, that yeah. at that time when yeah. this uh, Eight Days was taking place, the first one, that there was perhaps a lack of communication discourse between different dance communities. About? About dance practice. Okay. about And specifically about dance practice in Canada. Okay. Um, and this is where I met Justine yes. and two, five, four years ago, five years ago. And um, that's where we sort of did our first little lovely dance improv outside under an oak tree and then kind of went, oh, I like you. <laughs> it's like a, da- it's a it was dance lo- date. It was such a lovely dance date. And so we became fast friends and... Mm. Um, and now we're, we're sort of both quite busy. In our own practices, we're quite busy with the same thing. And then we found a really nice um, moment where we could actually meet in the studio. And so we're working towards creating a duet for next year. How did you realize that you were busy with the same thing? From the dance day or from the um, Through discussions, we... How much time do you have? As long as, long as you want. Um, it's not live. Very. It started partly for. We were both working in our own cities on very specific projects, one of which was. I. Um, in Berlin, there's a couple called Corinne and Jörg. Wait, sorry. In Berlin, there's a couple, a husband and wife yes. called Corinne and Jörg, and yes. they have been working. Uh, they, sorry, they are not artists and they're not dancers. They work. They live in Marzahn, which is kind of a, um, a suburb of Berlin with a lot of um, Plattenbau, like high-rise buildings, sort of social housing. Yeah. And since the fall of the wall, so they're East German, since the fall of the wall, they've seen over 4,000 dance shows because they love dance, but they're not dancers and they're not artists. And, and yet they spend literally... Mm, every other night since the fall of the wall watching dance shows and I met them 20 years ago um, and sort of reintroduced myself a few years ago sort of going hey you're still watching dance I would love to learn from you because wow of anybody here and Berlin is such a transient city or can be you are still here and watching dance. So um, I asked them to make a piece with me. 
And I asked them, because the thing is, they collect everything. They collect since, um, you know, the 90s, they've been collecting all the evening programs, all the ticket stubs, any writing um, on dance in Berlin. So I, and it, it's all in their living room. They have a, you know, it's, we're all stacked up. Then we live with them. Mm. And so I asked them to uh, share their strongest memories of dance with me. And from these memories alone, we tried to recreate the pieces. So they went over their 25 years of dance watching with me. And then we, um, yeah, we worked together with a cast of uh, five people who they selected. Who they would have seen. Who they would have seen, people that they felt connected to, who they've seen over the years. So what happened was we got a very eclectic mix of dancers who normally would never have worked together because they're not see the, what's beautiful about Kurun and Yoga is they're not dance snobs they'll see everything <laughs> from like the most you know main no not mainstream but you know big stage production you know touring festivals to the most obscure student work that maybe their mother went to, you know, <laughs> the performer's mother went to, and then Corinne and Yoga will be there. So they're, they're absolutely, completely open. Um, which meant that the people that they wanted to work with came from such different communities of dance. So uh, together with these five dancers and with Corinne and Yoga, we went through their archive and only through their memories, so never looking at documentation alone, uh, n never looking at original documentation, we tried to recreate their memories. Um, and so this occupied a lot of my time. Um, and by proxy, Justine was working on a very similar project in Vancouver with the with the Vancouver, local knowledge of Vancouver and the dance community there. And it's a very particular, quite a particular way of working. And as we got to talk, we were we realized we have a lot of similar interests. Um, and so we, we came to um, the realization that basically we wanted to hang out and spend more time together and get to know each other. <laughs> Do you think you love dance as much as this couple? No. No, I think I'm too cynical now. Oh, that's getting better. The more time you spend away from it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> wow. Okay. So then how do you... That piece came to fruition or it's still working through with Justine? There's a new piece. We started um, playing around in studio a year and a half ago. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a coordination question as I live in Germany, she lives in Canada, and we're both freelancers and we both have families. It gets um, complicated quite quickly. But we're working towards um, having another process that will go into premiere in 2019. And do you, whenever you discuss one of you coming to where the other one is, is that always like for, do you think about, okay, it's going to be a month intensive, bring the whole family, the family then has to set up and find another school or a job? No, because actually we we've basically worked in two stints, each kind of two to three weeks. Okay. Yeah, and uh, in both cases, families came. Is that is that better? Hmm. 
I like. It depends on the length. It depends on the length. Because if it's just one week, I imagine I, it's quite a nice break. I quite enjoy being uh, away from family life when I'm working, if I can. But yeah, it depends. Like three weeks is long. It is. Three weeks is long. Is that because family life keeps occupying a part of your brain? You can't just get steeped in the process, or? Um. It also depends if you're working from home and you have, you know, it, it's like if you go to a residency yeah. and you have that time yeah. to really be in the work and that doesn't have to be confined then to nine to five or whatever your studio time is, but then you have the evening to have a drink and talk and um, be in discussion yes. and, you know, yeah. read text together or whatever, you know, it, it can breathe, there's a lot more room to breathe. And that can be really generative mm. as well. And almost there's permission to stop being you. You're, like, yeah, another part of you gets you, to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a certain, when there are people around you who know a uh, part of you that can't just die for a month or get put on hold for a month. Yeah. Somehow it needs to be kept alive as a responsibility, as a, like a social responsibility or something. Yeah. Whereas, keep, keep your kid alive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, were you joking about damp cynicism? Or do you think that's a natural I'm, uh, survival technique of being involved deeply no, I was, in something? No, I was joking. Oh, okay. Kind of. <laughs> I get pretty cynical about its significance, but not about its importance. Yeah. I'm quite willing to believe that I can just be replaced. And oh, everyone's. Is not... <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, true. But this um, thing that you did with the couple, does, did it finish? Did it come to a result? That's Siri. Oh. Trying to answer the question. I was what did Siri have to say? Uh, Sorry. Oh, I would have asked. I changed my Siri to a Mac. I voice. like that. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, there's on a computer. There's Siri is like her own voice, but on an Apple Mac, there's Karen and there's Bruce, who are Australian voices. So you have Bruce. <laughs> I have Bruce. Yeah. Do you feel like that you react differently to Bruce's voice and Siri's voice? I wanted to test mm, watching myself give orders. Yeah, because it's to a male voice. Absolutely. And do you feel like you talk, speak differently? I feel like um, the word mate is much closer oh. to the forefront. Like, hey, mate, give me this. Oh, mat, that's, you know? wow. Instead of, so somehow, yeah, Siri is now a man on my phone. If I would say, hey, Siri, what's the time? Then Bruce is going to answer me. Can you say, hey, Bruce? Hmm. Does it? I don't know. I guess I could. So it's kind of. But Siri is, I guess, uh, not accidentally an ungendered name. True. That was one of our series trying to answer that because it's so nice. That's, oh my gosh, she's, she's there name. everywhere. Yeah. Um, but also, it's been, it's been a long journey working on the Blokes Project for five or six years and uh, knowing when the hierarchy is to be respected or undermined or 
cheekily played with, especially when you're the younger one in a situation, you're by default the offsider, which means that you do the things that require physical ability and the person in charge is operating the vehicle or whatever because their knees and hips are much older, for example. Or there's not a there's not a culture of expecting that you still have full range of mobility into your 40s in Australia, mm. which I feel like dance training has saved me from, just, not just accepting that that would be a gradual decline. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the decline will happen. But I think it will hopefully be a decline of ease before it's a decline of ability at all. Like, things will be harder, but I'll still be able to do them. Yeah. Into my 50s and 60s and 70s, I hope. Wow, that would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is when I make my own work, I just don't kick my leg up, you know? Well, I just why? don't. It's boring. Also. <laughs> but I can just choreograph shit that I can do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or at least, you know. We'd hope. Tell me if this is what happens to you. I feel like if my that I have to trust my body's intelligence in having been rigorously steeped in the subject matter or context and then how it responds to that, what it spits out in improvisation mm. or whatever, has a validation beyond mm, the need to remind everybody of my abilities. Sure. And I just have almost never found a situation. Except, so in the Blokes Project, there was a point where I'm like, those aren't work boots, and I put my leg up way too high. <laughs> and then I say, these are work boots. And that's like the one time when I really felt like being able to get my leg up was artistically justified. <laughs> you can put that on your CV. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that should be my, my photo. Definitely. I'm sorry I missed the showing and the show. Yeah. I would have loved to see you kick a, kick your leg up in a work in a boot. Work boot. Yeah. yeah. Well, they weigh about a kilo each, so you got extra. Oh. Yeah, an extra momentum. Yeah, it'd be I hard to do our dash. <laughs> I think that's your next movement score. <laughs> your next I challenge. I used to like sneak out and go to the bathroom or whatever during adage <gasps> at uni like oh yeah yeah just, yeah, just quickly go to the bathroom but then I realised that it was every time adage was happening <laughs> they, caught, they, they caught on yeah they caught on oh my god it just never felt like dancing to me and I'm pretty selfishly involved with dancing because of the feeling of dancing and so adage was it too slow for you too held or it, just uh yes you like to move. I like the ride of moving. And the ride of moving, this is my understanding of like the sixth and seventh and eighth senses that the body has, equilibrium, balance, that a lot of that happens in the fluid in your inner ears. So if your head always stays still, there's no real feeling of a ride the way that you get on a roller coaster or when you're going around a corner fast in a car or something like that on a push bike. So to feel like I'm getting a ride out of the dancing that I'm doing, the head needs to have moments where it hits an apex and then falls and then comes back up through momentum. And that arch isn't going to give me that. No, unless you do a few, like, 
head twirls in the middle of the... <laughs> uh, true. Make it even more challenging. But do you... Do you get, like, a, an instant payoff from dancing like that? Like, a pleasurable payoff, rather than the long-term happiness of seeing... Like, instant gratification, like... Yeah, what is, is what is what what does dancing give you? Not dance, not the institution and the aesthetic and the form, but this body dance. Oh, uh, I think it's still an extremely cathartic mm. sort of goes to the center. It's, for me, it's about also it's at once absolute presence and abandonment. It can be both at the same time. Uh, I think that's pretty much you just quoted Billy Elliot. I yeah. totally stand by that. Yeah. Because when I'm at home and I put on the music and mm. I get like and I get like if you really take it away from studio practice or any like to be able to move one's body mm. and the privilege of being able to move, move one's body yeah. the way you feel, uh, it's really um, it's this aliveness mm. um, that yeah. Um, yeah, that is so important to tap into and to remember. And, yeah, and to be in the presence of it and to realize what that sensation is. And that's not necessarily something that I strive for in the studio. This is something else. This is really... And perhaps also in that sense, something which a lot of perhaps dancers started off with, with this sort of base feeling of, of connect of being connected, feeling very connected to um, to presence. Mm. Yeah, I think that's why I've never really gotten good at head spins. <laughs> because it, when I first saw it 15 years ago, I was like, that looks like a ride like you're flying yeah well that makes and sense then when, you. you're, when you're doing it it feels like work that's it doesn't feel like what it looks like yeah sometimes it's better that's the other thing kinesthetic empathy like I'll just <laughs> let them do the head spin and I'll enjoy their ride but I don't yeah mm. wow head spins yeah well it was hard because I saw head spins before I ever went to uni and then people are trying to get me to do pirouettes and it just never it's seemed like, like something wrong was way. worth Fighting for actually, yeah. it didn't the, the effort to pay off ratio seemed low, oh, no, no. <laughs> and then Betty Allegro seemed even lower. <laughs> um, but you know, everyone's got their own. I do still maintain that most ballet is founded on a foot fetish, mm. and that actually other dance styles that are more involved in the experience of the community of the people that are doing them don't focus so much on the form of the foot that's it's off like if you're dancing for pleasure then it's often about the hands and the face which is like and the hips <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe I'm wrong about that but it's definitely I just don't think about my feet they're just there to move me around which is why I dash. I'm like, uh, why am I lifting my foot up to be looked at? Yeah, no, 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 no. Put them in pillows. <laughs> in but, pillows? Yeah, and then they don't look at your feet. I, hang on. If you put your, wrap your feet in pillows 
and wait. Have you done this? No, but I just had an image of someone. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just really thought there must have been a solo that you've done. No, 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 no. Are there people that um, that you still look to that are inspiring or exciting that are working physically? Yeah. There's so much that I don't know. Really, a lot of. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's always learning or trying to, mm-hmm. and but I have to say one person that I, I feel is always searching, and who, and 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 it's always creating also work for the stage in in a research way is Meg Stewart, and also her 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 studio practice and her practice. She's still really deeply invested in 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 understanding movements and its meaning and but also in many ways very humble and you know she she she's also learning and she makes that very transparent in how she is with people and um i really feel like she still she's i'm inspired by her because even though she's been at this for such a long time, she also wants to keep learning, and she's also researching, and she doesn't assume that she has the answers. She's on the search too, and that's really beautiful to be around. She's very—I find her very inspiring. And yeah, oh man, there's so much, um, and I do feel. After this podcast, quite, in, quite invigorated to, to, to learn more. I also want to learn more about what's happening in Australia, and perhaps I can ask you the same question. Mm. Huh. I think Australia has an aesthetic that it ties to ambition and to be ambitious about generated culture or community or research is not recognised until it is framed in the capitalising on your resources sense of let's make the most of this asset that I have access to and so if that's time or a grant or studio space or people and I think when you're busy trying to make the most of something then there's not much space to be to go on the tangent that you hadn't considered and I think the tangent is where the treasure lies actually because something I heard the other day that quite often your first idea is somebody else's idea (laughs) that has been sitting in your mind until the context has arisen where you need to think about it and so the first idea that your brain your mind serves to you going off this idea that we don't think that our our mind thinks and we just watch the thoughts happening that if you're trying to capitalise, especially on time and resources, then you'll take the first solution. And the first solution is not yours often. It's somebody else's. Which, like, possibly is still the best one. But, yeah. yeah. I think, so I think that's how 
like the ambition of Meg, for example, to constantly research, I have, I have what's the word for it? The trouble I have with that is at which point are we still doing something versus keeping ourselves busy until we die? Like at which point is it actually just like how your neighbour has a rose garden because it's nice for them to do and versus something is actually happening, mm. something is progressing. And I don't know the answer to that because it seems hard to quantify, but it is a question that I try and hold myself to, mm. whether I'm doing something or whether I'm just self-medicating <laughs> through activities, which I guess plants me firmly back in what I was talking about, the Australian context of um, being ambitious or what you put your time into and what has economic value not financial necessarily but like in the economy of how you allocate the asset of time and energy and focus and love and patience mm. so I see that I'm still tied within it as well because I don't on one hand, I'm selfish enough and self-important enough to think, well, if this is what I need to do so that I don't become the kind of road rage arsehole that gets clicked at, like, somebody running a red light and then I end up in jail because one punch hit or whatever, then it's much better that I do the, the selfish thing that I need to do that means that I can be a better person in society. But on the other hand, I still want to be doing something that is having an effect for just more than just me. I don't know if they're necessarily mutually exclusive. No, I hope they're not. Yeah. I, mean, I tell myself that they're not, and I just don't know if I believe myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on how this sort of self-reflection is then brought yeah. into discussion yeah, yeah, or yeah, how yeah. it's yeah. brought to your community or your... Or, to, or perhaps to a public. Or... Yeah. Yeah. Or even just the thing that when I... saw all my cousins the other day who are about my age, male cousins, like you go for the hug, not the handshake. They provide the handshake opportunity and you... No. Oh, you go... You lean in. Yeah, I go in. Oh, nice. And because I'm, I guess... But then I also understand that if I'm going to take that, uh, what's the word, liberty, then I need to meet them on other things, on intonation or speed of speech or vernacular or topics of conversation. And so it's like it's the giving and taking and the meeting and where are you going to meet me and where am I going to meet you? And I'll just take this opportunity to, like, squish two <laughs> male bodies together. <laughs> and then we can talk about um, other things. Then we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Right. We can maintain your worldview. I won't challenge that in words, but I'll just challenge it in how we can interact or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but I also don't mean to say that the artist is the only person who has that self-reflexivity to make those calls. No. But something about acting as a cultural agent in Australia is a funny thing to do. Because it kind of falls within a certain economy or because there's a certain expectation or because of the way that infrastructures are set up so that... It because it seems like the... It seems like a bourgeois position. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> Right, that whole thing. Yeah, which is actually fine because the op- the other op- the alternative in Australia is to identify some kind of Aussie battler. Really? Yeah. There's just those two boxes. Yeah, but they're not economically defined. Like you can have money and still be an Aussie battler because you don't realise how much you have because maybe your parents were actually um, struggling mm. and so you've taken that on physically, mentally interculturally. No, I'm sure there's many more boxes. <laughs> I don't think so. Mm. I guess I would like to hope that even people who I think are complete tossers still are of a context that has led to that system of engaging the world and that that is cohesive within their world and that if I can meet them at that then I meet a whole community rather than just discounting the individual and the thing that challenges me most is if I think that somebody's worldview is not cohesive and that's why I have a problem with scientists who believe in God (laughs) nice nice (laughs) down to the point yeah I don't have a problem with I was going to say a botanist, but kind of a bot- botany is still a science. Oh, yeah. So I don't have, I guess, a problem with what a mechanic who believes in God. What do I? Because that's still engineering and it's still fact based. It's still fact based, still based on science. Yeah. Oh, this is going down a whole rabbit hole. This yeah. Is, this well, the hard thing is, is that because my position is that God is an illusion that we, like money, that we all get on board with so that we can live better together and that, of course, it can be skewed both ways for benefit and for cost and for benefit of your immediate family or in-group and cost to everybody else. <laughs> but that because it's an illusion, then that there's a certain amount of... Uh, a concession there's a concession that you give to your factual mind to allow this illusion sure and I would like my mechanic not to be labouring under illusions when they're maintaining when they're fixing your car yeah so don't believe in the Easter bunny when you're they're fixing your carburetor or whatever. No. See, this, this is where it's tricky. He's like, well, they could be kept separate, but maybe they can't. Like a belief, a belief system that can't be challenged by facts is a belief system nonetheless. And it's still a fitness that the mind has to maintain an illusion in the face of alternate experience. 
that challenges that thing. And so that's, I mean, even the do the Challenger disaster with the so the space shuttle yes. you know, blew up. I remember that day. There were particular O rings that had frozen over the night before. And the dude who had to sign off on that the O-rings were okay to operate, he saw the temperature from the night before and said that no deal. The O-rings are possibly compromised and we shouldn't take off. And he, like, everybody was under pressure from the shuttle launch being delayed for many days. Um, Time and cost, and of course it was a massive public event because of the teachers and such that were on board as well and he held his ground and said I can't sign off on it and so they replaced him (gasps) and they got somebody else in to sign off to go ahead and then it blew up oh that's terrible and that uh, that sits for me with the same thing within like faith in the corporation or being taken away by the external pressures of the situation is that there were facts that were evidently clear to the person who was put in charge that said this should not be happening. That there was a collective agreement that it should happen. Because of X and X pressure and... Yeah, social pressure. Social. And, uh, political pressure. It's all politically funded and things sure. like that. Um, and that's that seems to me like the danger of maintaining an illusion and not being able to say oh that illusion that I had that that was working actually Boy. there's yeah. new information that says you gotta let, let go you kind of let gotta let go and admit when yeah. you're, maybe wrong is not the right word but yeah but then I wonder about this in the case of and I really want to talk to Kate Harmon about this with her improvisational practice, is because in the studio, when you're generating or when you're playing, you're like surrendering yourself of what you know to be true or what you know about who you are or your own parameters so that you can be available to the ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and so that seems useful and generative Mm. and I remember Kate once said I think on a podcast we were talking about that she doesn't fear anyone she tries to not fear anyone she's going to meet or anyone that she will become because she knows that all of she works from an idea that all of the possibilities of who everyone has become is also a possibility for her or the, the evil things that anybody has done she may also have done in a similar situation and so in a situation like a generative improvisation you can become all of those things because all of them are in you but they don't define you but I don't know then like what you do with that or how that exists in the outside world I think the difference between the professional and the amateur is the training to know what kernel of yourself is still somehow your self and you can let everything else grow and change and morph in the in the service of the work but still have a self to take home after the end of the day 
I think about this in relationship to working with non-trained people mm. is that there's like a training of safety of self or something that the professional goes through it's a bit meandering the thoughts that I'm impressed Somehow, somehow the podcast has turned to Matt Cornell. Well, it's no, <laughs> great. I'm learning a lot. Um, no, I unfortunately wasn't able to to be in Kate's class mm, when we were at Bare Bones. Same. Oh, you weren't. You also didn't. no. I was running the oh yeah. something or nothing. Right. At the exact same time, which comes back to my concern of like. Mm. I trust that there is a sense that I have, which could be called instinct or could be called training, that tells me that something is happening and should be explored further in a studio or choreographic environment. Um, and is... But the something or nothing is like, okay, there's that gauge that I'm relying on to tell me whether I'm wasting my time or not <laughs> and everybody else's time is growing the food for me who's trucking the food in is getting paid to stack the shelves that then I've got to take the thing off and maintain the road that I drive on to get to the rehearsal like, I can only be there doing the thing because of all these other people who are doing all these other things and I don't want to like it seems to respect and to value their efforts mm. is to make sure that I'm doing something <laughs> <laughs> right yeah at its optimum so this yeah. is sort of a way uh, like a kind of a barometer barometer of I guess yeah well I just think it's so easy to to convince yourself that you're doing something when you're not that's my daily life. <laughs> well, it's also, I mean, when we were doing the, the class together, um, I think there's also such different ways of being with that because as a, as a person generating the, the movement or the perhaps performer, my sensation could be living in a completely different world than the viewer's sensation. So sure. it's interesting to think about how they yeah. work together and what, it, and what is the role of the spectator yeah. as the, and what is that transmission. In this collective that I'm a part of, Dance Makers Collective, we did a show recently. We assigned somebody to, as a group, we chose somebody within the group to take care of the viewer. And so when we rehearsed the scenes, we're like, I'm feeling like something's happening. We were like, okay, can you get out there and see if something is happening? Oh my God. <laughs> like a gong show. <laughs> Beep. Yeah, yeah. Nah, oh. Gone. <laughs> or can you help increase the signal to noise ratio so that the something that's happening for me can happen for you when you're watching it? But sometimes there needs to be the quiet before the something happens. Yes. And, and but that's why we are trained to be able to hear a very quiet voice mm. 
Like, the something's not happening in all its glory at every moment in a studio. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> With lights and smoke oh. and a grinder like sparks everywhere, <laughs> like a midnight oil concert <gasps> or something. Yes. Um, no, for sure. But I guess that would be the only problem that I would have with effort is when it's wasted because nothing's happening. Oh, God. Time is money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess time is money, but also life is precious. Life, Life is precious. I mean, I think that's why I'm so excited to work with Justine. Because, I mean, we... She's precious. She's so <laughs> precious. But not fragile. Definitely not fragile, <laughs> Justine. <laughs> no, because, um, I mean, we, we talk about it in transmission between spectator mm. or viewer and performer, but also when two dancers get together or a, collective, a collection yes. of dancers. And what happens with, in the studio for us is feels so... We, Hard to describe, but we feel it in our body. We know that there's something that needs to be explored mm. because it's not very often you get the sense that, oh, she can read my body, I can read her body, we can be in synergy without having to talk about it. Although half of our rehearsal time is spent talking. But there's something in that um, intrinsic understanding of another person's body in space that was that is what is convincing us also... Aside from the subject matter that we want to speak to, the fact that we feel like it's important to address the aliveness of our bodies mm-hmm. in in, pub, in in performance mode is what's propelling us to try to seek funding to get this thing happening, because it could perhaps you know not not perhaps not all works have to be in the form of a performance, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't it wouldn't it be wonderful also if we had the funds to do research or that this can find an expression in other ways and in this particular case what was so exciting is that we both we thought about those different options also because we knew that working in different continents is going to cause a lot of logistical um, possible problems that we were you know maybe we can write movement scores maybe how can we how can we keep working in our geographical locations without being physically together but we realized it is because we are physically together that it's so exciting and that's why we we need it to be in in an alive form in a, in a, in a dance present form and then so in that sense I'm not cynical about dance because of that this this held belief in the aliveness of the body. That sounds very basic, but it's something that's coming up more and more for me again. Maybe because I have been away from the studio for so long. And so coming back into a physical practice, um, it's great to be reminded of the intelligence of the body instead of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Yeah. Do you know what that thing is that's telling you that something's there between you that's happening? I think, first of all, the subject matter feels very actual and present to us. So we're working with the um, gestures of political resistance. Um, It feels very urgent to us, and it also... Uh, as two women of color 
and being able to work through certain autobiographical material in a way that's not revealed on stage but is worked through personally and in the studio is an extremely confronting and beautiful and process and um, I don't know if any of this, the autobiographical material will find itself on stage as such that can be directly readable to an audience but the fact that I feel like we're able to speak through the very personal and the very political within the same breath and this for me is extremely important um, and I feel like the f it will find its form because of both the subject matter and the two of us together being live bodies in, in a space together and what that can generate. Um. Yeah, somehow when I interviewed Jung about the work that he made with Yuli, he was talking about that the he separated the material that you're working with to make the show versus the subject matter of the show. Mm. And he said, with Yuli being there, that, that, that is the material now that they are working with as she is the performer. And so it doesn't have to be about right. her or her experience or her journey because yeah. that's, that's actually the, the ingredients. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. When did you first hear the term women of colour? Uh, in the 80s. Wow. I was born in the 80s. In the 90s? Because <laughs> <laughs> I only heard it probably five years ago. Okay. And have you identified with that since you heard it? I always knew I was considered other in that sense. Because you're living in a Cause I lived in appearing country. Well, I lived in the suburbs of Ottawa. We were the only... We were the, only. the suburbs of Ottawa? Yeah, we were... Aside from two other Chinese families, we were the only mm -hmm. Chinese family in the, in the block, in the suburb. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, you know... Does that mean you've lived in white appearing countries all your life? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And yes. Mm -hmm. Um, well, yeah, I grew up in Ottawa and the suburbs of Ottawa, and then I moved to Berlin. I mean, there's diversity and there's community, and absolutely um, not immediately visible, perhaps, in, in, in the neighborhoods that I've been living in. Yeah, and the Gold Coast. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Gold Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Look, even I stand out because my hair's dark. Oh, come on. <laughs> Isn't everyone blonde here? Isn't everyone just like sun-bleached blonde? There's a bit of that happening. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so do you feel like you don't have to really make the show about any of those things? Because when you and Justine rock up and you're in the space, that just is what is working. Like that's what's working between you and then on the world. Is this history... <laughs> Um, baggage. <laughs> the weight of the world on our shoulders. 
<laughs> on her brown and yellow shoulders. <laughs> Billy Elliot didn't have that. No, he didn't have that. He had a class situation, yeah. not a race situation. Yeah. No, um, well, we'll see, hey? I mean, we've... Um, the subject matter is very on the nose in that sense, so I don't think we... In Canada? In, uh, in, in the work that we're working... Oh, in The subject, actual subject matter. So it's it's not going to be... It's, it's all part of the same pot. So um, what do you do? You and Justin get in the studio, and then you vibrate off each other and then you talk Ooh. about it. Oh, we do. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, we started with a lot of reading, mm. um, working what? through notions of how spaces choreograph us, how public spaces choreograph us, how mm. what is considered and who is which bodies are allowed access to what in which kind of spaces mm. Josh Thompson gets pissed off at the airport with the cattle herding <laughs> lying situation because he grew up around cattle so whenever he sees that it, it immediately makes him feel like he's, um, he's a cat? stock yeah basically. well kind of, yeah which Fair. we become in numbers kind of, yeah definitely. it's like a, a person is a beautiful creature and people are gross on mass <laughs> <laughs> And I just need to be directed. Just get me through. <laughs> um, yeah, and then we uh, we'll, we might have a piece of writing that we want to share. Where do these come from? Like, who uh, writes them or how do you come across that, them? Or um, what are they? Comics, Garfield comics. I That's a great idea. We need more comics. Comics influences a lot of my work. I can appreciate that. I would love to Mostly just more. the frame, the way the frame oh, is yeah. constructed. yeah. I'm like, God damn, that's that and cinema. That's how I want to set the Absolutely. Stage. Well, it's yeah. how, we've, how we are famed, how we fame ourselves. But, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, so we've... Yeah, I can, I can show you my little bibliography, I suppose. <laughs> but, but basically, we talk through these notions and, and uh, you know, Andre Lepecki writes about choreo-policing, how the police choreograph, can choreograph our movements. We talk about how protest movements can be seen as choreography. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we specifically started working with sort of a lexicon of um, political gestures, for example, the... Lexicon the, is like a vocabulary. The vocabulary, a collection of, of, of political gestures, for example, the fist, the raised fist of the Black yeah. Panthers. And this brings, or the hands up, don't shoot. Um, from Ferguson, it, it, it's extremely loaded. It's extremely fraught. Um, it's a very difficult subject matter, and also as to you know, middle class women who aren't living in, for example, Ferguson. How how can we be an ally to this and not appropriate this movement and yet feel a solidarity. So all of these are things that we talk about in the studio. Are we allowed to appropriate or to live with these movements even though we are not on the ground mm. with uh, so having a feeling a deep alliance and deep respect for this for these movements and 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 deep for these certain political movements and how can our dance be informed by that and not just be an illustration and a taking over a colonization of those ideas it's and we talk about a 
a lot of things from very personal um, experiences as well. Um, and so we'll, some, sometimes we'll, we'll sort of um, take a, a gesture, like for example the, the, the fist, and then create a timed improvisation with it and to see how one can go into that movement and come out to the movement. Very simple. And that in itself is very generative in terms of... Because it also... It's... For us, or for myself at least, it's very emotionally evocative to be to take the, that fist. What, how does that make you feel? And then what does it mean when you're doing it in a dance studio? And um, what does it mean when you're two women of color doing that? And it's so... It's, it's a very... Mm. It's a very meaningful research that we're undertaking. Is there For movements me. like that that are already in your body that you get that you use? Are there any sort <clears throat> movements or body shapes or presentation or whatever that you that are yours that are not of someone over there that have not yeah. become icons? that are a way that you move through the world as also in a minority situation. Mm. The reason I, <laughs> I would liken that to say, like, there was a way that I moved and walked that became uh, apparent to me once I started dance training. Mm. And now I can just choose to turn it back on for the Blokes Project because that was where I came from. And I would not be sitting with my legs crossed, with my hand on my chin, thinking about what you're talking about <laughs> if we were right. in a truck yard leaning over the back of a ute. It also would probably be much hotter, but it would be much hotter this kind of Oh, situation. he just went into the man spread. Yeah. But the spread is like about the back of the knuckles and it's about the elbow and it's, it's like a, an aching, hulking mass that has been moving heavy shit all day that doesn't want to hold itself up. Yeah. Like, and that doesn't feel to me like I've appropriated from another place. I don't even have to worry about that because it's my genesis lineage. That is how I understood my physical Direct translation. The There's, that's just... Yeah, and I'm actually not even representing another. I'm, I'm being of the context that would that that suits. Whereas a, a dance studio doesn't suit that context. Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, it's and also so. I wonder if you have things like this as well that are from your genesis that you that like. So the idea that we learn, we have experiences so that then later we can build language onto those experiences. I think that for me that's difficult to answer because it's maybe alluding to an idea that we have about essentialism and that there's a, sort of an essentialist um, being, mm. um, which I'm not too sure. No, I definitely don't sure. agree that there's yeah. that. Um, I guess I think more about those when you're talking about just picking mm. a, a single physical phys, physicality from a culture and community that you are not a part of. Then I'm asking, what is the physicality that is in your body from the culture and community that you are a part of? 
and have those come into the practice or have you decided that they're not relevant or important because they're not as iconographized? Yes, I mean, I think we, I mean, it's a process. So all of this is still on the table. Yeah. Um, we also, um, I, should, I, because I'm not going to speak for Justine, <laughs> and as this is still a process, it's, yeah. you know, it's ever evolving and lots of talking involved. Um, we, I, <laughs> Part of the research is to sort of um, bring in iconic gestures because they're the most understood or most carved out or most etched in in sort of the consciousness of people. But it's also movements perhaps that we, I, would like to feel or feel solidarity towards. Um, But also, I'm not interested in simply cherry-picking and, you know taking absolutely not so it's not so much about taking movement and then carrying it as my own but maybe to come back to your question yes I think um, everything that we are trying or that I'm trying to bring to the studio needs to come from personal experience whether I can really say this is my movement I'm not sure is possible at all no I agree because I'm so informed by the dance training but also how I move about publicly and in which kind of spaces and do I walk around the Gold Coast the same way that I walk around Berlin no not at all so my friend who I've worked with um, I like my cultural dance from YouTube the project I did yeah. a little while ago she is often a video editor for ads or for ABC or whatever and they were all standing around as the backstage cast and crew often are when something's being shot and her mum is from the Badayu culture and indigenous peoples of Malaysia and so to take a break she squatted uh, and got reprimanded from her boss for squatting because it's not culturally acceptable within Australia to do that but it's perfectly uh, what's the word it's a very logical way to take a rest (laughs) Mm. Um, and she didn't grow up in Malaysia she just grew up around her mum and so it seems to me in that scenario that being able to do what what is often termed the Asian squat (laughs) sorry I had another image in my head (laughs) (laughs) is as much like in various contexts, is as much of a political statement. Sure. And to defend your, uh, what's the word, agency for your body to rest in that form is as much. Anyway, so I'm actually asking if there's something like that that is in your body that you would otherwise naturally do but feel like actually you don't do now in the new situations that you're in. In public? Like in public spaces? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty well trained. Yeah, this is... Like, but you know, it also doesn't take much to rock the boat. It really doesn't at all. Yeah, especially in the colonies. (laughs) (laughs) But really, like, you, you slow down your walk by, you know, half a pace. 
or you you gaze at something or someone a little bit longer or you don't maintain eye contact or you know there's such a normative way of being it really doesn't take much to shift people's perspective and that's the thing coming back to the museum like at first when I started that that project I was like I'm gonna make people run and jump and skip and do you know tremble and first of all it's very hard to ask someone to do that yeah and also it's not necessary it's not necessary to get someone to have a huge change of perspective just by asking them to lean their head on a diagonal five degrees mm. because we're so we maintain such a, a, a certain uh, we're expected to maintain a certain normative rhythm pace gait I mean the walk is, is the signature so we, we are expected to have a certain kind of signature in, in public. Mm. Yeah, so... Um, I guess also to, to focus on... the shape of a body that has become an icon strong enough to put as a silhouette on a T-shirt and everyone still understands what it is. Mm. That that is to make a show for multiple audiences and multiple communities and different mm. nations. Whereas mm, the blogs project, I only ever really thought about making for Northern Territory audiences mm. <laughs> who would wander past us, actually. And people, I remember people just talking to us about flannies and things like this and me thinking I've never owned a, a, a flannel oh, flannel. oh yeah like checkered shirt that yeah. is like a blokey thing to wear that I'd never owned it or seen any of the blokes that we were working with own one because it's always 35 degrees and <laughs> but that's there or like people saying oh so it's really about these blue collar works and like, no 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 blue singlet is like a whole nother mm. rung of society mm. that you don't interact with like the, the collars talk to each other and <laughs> the singlets talk to each other but there's something about that if you're taking influences from the world then I guess you're making a show for the world well are we because it's a dance show and who goes to see dance shows um, if they're free lots of people really yeah I saw this terrible dance work from a British company it was at the Sydney Maya Music Bowl and they had like the prostheses and like everyone was in tights and they were being really weird and it was a bad show but it was free and mm. there were thousands of people there okay so like, yeah people took their families and a picnic and shit okay but generally <laughs> no if it's 40 bucks and the cinema is 18 and it's Fast and Furious 7 which I know is going to be hilarious then I'll go and see that it, that's kind of like it's interesting to think about audience and who is the audience and you know like Tickets are very expensive in Australia. They're less expensive in Berlin. It's much more accessible. It's, but it's still quite a dance audience. Other dancers, other choreographers, some other performing artists. But, you know, it's still... You need to live in an urban centre to reach it anyway. Possibly, yes. Yeah. 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 And that's also why I was so interested in Corinne and Jörg. Because they're not your typical dance audience. They believe in dance. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
does. Oh, deeply. <laughs> it's their life. <laughs> and no matter what facts they're faced with, they're going to continue their faith. Absolutely. In death. Oh, yeah. It, they're incredible. <laughs> they have a whole. They're their own choreography, for sure. Um, is there any. Do you know why? Like, what your biggest hope is for the efforts that you're putting into making work and continuing being in your body? And... Um. Because there's a lot of cost. And so I imagine that there's a hope. The work that I've been doing lately is seemingly very disparate. Like, one day I hope to be able to connect the dots to all these different researches. Uh, like a grand unified theory. <laughs> that manifesto yeah. we were talking about. <laughs> Um, why, why, when you write an app, does it sound like a manifest? I don't know. It's like, this work is really important. And yeah. this is the flag yeah. that I fly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the flag that I fly. What is my hope? That through working with the... Uh, everything I'm going to say will sound like Billy Elliot at the moment. That's okay. It's a good movie. I have to watch it again. <laughs> hmm. Mainly, what I took from Billy Elliot is that all the constructs around this individual were falling apart and the coping mechanisms of his father and his brothers that they had inherited were not functioning. And being trained to dance through the process of learning how to dance his body was given back to him mm. that's what I would take away from Billy Elliot is that there's now this new agency and understanding and resilience and intelligence that this individual has that was not on offer from the environment that he was in. Mm. Which, of course, can be dashed just as much by a shit teacher of dancing as well. It's not dance as, like, a magical thing, but... I think I'm excited by all the unanswered questions still, like, actually, what can a body do? Mm. And we don't know still. Mm. Um, I'm still excited about... The concept of choreography and what that can offer, choreography away from dance. Like choreography as an intelligent consideration of bodies yeah. and space. Yeah, and, and, and different systems. Yeah. Um, and I'm I would like to hope that we can find also different structures where we can ask these questions without necessarily being um, having to produce and always having to be in the public and that these that these research I've been so fortunate to have these these um, months of research time um, and hopefully 
there can be a way to find infrastructures where that can be supported. So we don't have to think about bums on seats all the time. I think this might be generational difference and only Yeah, I think so shows. too. I think so too. But for Blokes Project, our resolve was to always be in the public. Yeah. Because the work, the show was not the work. Yeah. Making it in front of, being seen to be blokey dudes that <laughs> were like in work gear on a container dancing. Mm. That was the work as much as the conversations we had, as much as showing up in a ute to set. Yeah. For the dance show. So the show in the end is the thing that you sell, but it's not the work that you're doing. Right. Whereas I think about the gift project and I think actually I was in the public for a second every day and we, there was, but then we were also in the public to shoot and generate all the material every day. Uh, But the expectation is different because that's not the show or that's not the concise message that's like, mm. supposed to punch through or and I also care about choreography that is used to put the viewer in a state where they can think or receive or mm-hmm. test out a different version of themselves or point of view or alliance yeah and so I think the seeing seeing someone doing the dancing doesn't always do that until it's the show. Yeah. With all the things in it, so it's yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, I no, I, I I'm not saying that we should just close the doors and research, but that you know, time is important. Yeah. As well. Time where well, I wonder, and I hope that it seems like we're racing towards a world where everything you say at each moment will be held to you and you can never revise your opinion on it and you can be crucified on like the one wrong thing that you say during research or during development Mm -hmm. or whatever but actually in, in my experience the first half is going to be like of your process is going to be entirely embarrassing and hopefully you reach a point where you look back at the person that first asked the question with (laughs) disdain (laughs) (laughs) like they're insulting the gravity of the situation by asking the question in the first place or something (laughs) hopefully that's like a process takes you so far that if you knew then what you knew now, you would never embark on it. Oh, yeah. Wow. Scary. <laughs> so what what could be an alternative to a safe research... Like, sorry, another version of offering safe research could be the space for conversation and generosity within conversation and that you can see that somebody is researching something and you 
understand that they're not making a manifesto in that moment. Sure, and I think by research, that's exactly what I mean too, to be in conversation and to yeah. be, and you know, in some ways sharing your resources. Do you have any epiphanies that you want to finish on? Epiphanies? <laughs> or even just like something that you try and remind yourself of often when you're making or working with people. Or, like do, you, do you actually get fatigued from working with people? Yes. <laughs> I mean, doesn't everyone? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, in a good way, because it's like a, there's so much, sometimes just too much information, and I just need to time up so that I can digest it. I'm a very slow person. I like, t- I take time. I'm not prolific. I need, that's the other thing, is I can't, I can't produce a show a year. I, that's, you know, for me, that's yeah. like, I, I like ADs that are supposed to make four. Yeah. And seven. I can, I, and anyways, we all know that it that takes shit. two, yeah. <laughs> no! But it when takes two years to make a show, you know, big, if you're freelance and getting all the grants together. So I'm very, very slow in that sense. I'm not prolific in terms of public output. Um, epiphanies. What I try to remind myself every day. Mm. I'm just going to read from your T-shirt, which says, Love is the whole world. I don't live <laughs> I went for an interview at ABC Radio and there's this big, beefy security guard that took us up to the area where we were getting interviewed and he read my T-shirt. This was this. And then we had a massive discussion about ideology separating people. Mm. And um, and then I guess he went back to like telling people not to come in or whatever the security wow. guard's job is or something. <laughs> wow. Actually, I think one thing that I want to do more of is to listen. Do you not think, though, do you not sometimes think that as a woman of colour, in the ratio of people that are listening and talking, there's already, there's some other people that could be taking care of that more listening? The the word listen does not just simply apply to me. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, okay, then let me add I, I only, and to speak. <laughs> but also, don't listen to me telling you what you're supposed to be. See how deeply ingrained it is? <laughs> <laughs> terrible! It is terrible. I just produced some good shit. Penicillin? You know, that came out of a bunch of... Terribly horrible, um, systemically mm, poisonous hierarchies, yeah. and we had penicillin, or the moon, or what? Millions of lives saved, or the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we went to the moon. GPS satellites that is free for like everyone can use GPS for free, but it costs two million dollars a day to keep running heaps of satellites circling the earth to give us that GPS information that's so wild to me Mm. that not everybody has to pay like a two dollar a week subscription to GPS (laughs) 
but they're private. They're private satellites. So who's funding GPS? There's a. It was started by the U.S. government for yeah. their military positioning, but then I think there's a worldwide. There's a board that get together to discuss how to keep maintaining who is putting into that mm. governments from that. Pretty wild though. GPS is like a GPS satellite about as big as a washing machine. Wow. And then it's just got these wings that come out the side for solar power. And they just float up there. And then now we know where we are. And now we're a blue dot. Now we're <laughs> <laughs> You open that paper map and you can't see a blue dot. It's all growing. Well, it's like the Marauders map from Harry Potter where it seemed mm-hmm. like such a... Such fanciful a idea. Fanciful. And here we are living in the future. We got it. You just can't fold your phone up. Well, you could if you get those clap back. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. true. We'll come back to that. It had, apparently. Apparently something. Is there anything I haven't asked you? You've asked me a lot. Is there anything I haven't told you? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want to hear anything. No. I'm done. I I, no, I'm trying to... No, I, uh, lots of meandering thoughts on my part. Um, I'm not sure... Yeah, I'm not sure what I, I might be able to add at this point. <laughs> Gonna go watch Billy Elliot. You can, there's um, quite often YouTube, like this movie in five minutes situation, and they just cut the main points. Ah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you're trying to still write your applications. No, that's great. We need, maybe we need that for dance, like best stuff. Five minutes, you too. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a gift. <laughs> three, three seconds? Gift. Well, yeah, three seconds. You've done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks. You're welcome, thank you.